Attention friends, are you ready to embark on a journey into the unknown this Mother's Day? Prepare to dive into the depths of your family's history with mylifeinabook.com. Each week, mylifeinabook.com sends intriguing questions, uncovering the thrilling tales of your mom's past, and then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. From daring escapes to nail-biting encounters, her life becomes an epic adventure waiting to be explored. This Mother's Day, give the gift of excitement and intrigue with mylifeinabook.com. It's a thrilling ride through your mom's life that you won't want to miss. I gave this to my mom last year, and let's just say I didn't know my mom as well as I thought I did. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE for 10% off today. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. At 7.20 a.m. on the 16th of October, 1985, Paula Wheeler dropped her daughter Chevy off at Franklin High School. As she got out of the car, Chevy leaned over and gave her mum a kiss and told her that she loved her. She said bye, Bye. jumped out of the car and headed off towards the school buildings. At around 7.30 a.m., after asking friends if they wanted to go swimming with her, Chevy left the school and told her friends that if she wasn't back by noon, to let her dad know that she was meeting her boyfriend, Donnie. Chevy had been known to skip school in the past, so her skipping off didn't raise any eyebrows or suspicions with her friends. It was around five o'clock in the evening that Paula got a call from her husband to say that Chevy was not home and he didn't know where she was. What nobody knew was that Chevy had arranged to meet Shermantine that morning. It is believed that she wanted to know what had happened to her friend, Joanne Hobson, previous month and thought Shermantine might know. We spoke to Chevy's mother, Paula, about Chevy and the events leading up to her disappearance. She was quite a girl. She was one of a kind. When she was supposed to be born in December and she came in October, we were watching Rosemary's Baby at the drive-in. The night that I had to go to the hospital, I was put under station. Once I got to the hospital, all I dreamt about was having the devil. 
But she came. She was six and a half months. Wait, three, 14, 18 inches long. Two days later, she got a collapsed lung. Back then, that was back in 68, so they didn't have much technology. So they took a x-ray picture of her lungs and went by then and came out fine. She was in the hospital for a month and a half before we were able to bring her home at five pounds. But she was in intensive care up until then. She was the tiniest baby I'd ever seen. And I had bought a bunch of diapers in preparation for her. And I folded them as small as I could. Turns out I needed them even smaller. So it was touch and go there for a while, her being so small, but she made it. And we had some great times when she was small. And she loved to go everywhere, play in the snow and run through the woods. She liked to go everywhere with us. When she was two and a half, she got her sister, Marnie. They grew up as a twosome. Everywhere Chevy went, Marnie tagged behind, did everything with her. No matter who was, she had a click. Shauna B, Shauna C, were the two main ones that she was close to. They did everything together. When she got older, about 10 or so, she'd help my husband work on the car. She learned the tools, and when she was asked for a half-inch wrench... Honey, will you bring me a half-inch wrench? She's getting a half-inch wrench. She stayed out with him while he fixed on the cars. He left her for it. Getting into high school... She changed her ways. She started cutting school, although we were not aware of it as much as she was. Don't know who with. I never did find out. She continued that for two years. Then when she got into a junior year, she got to think of, gee, she's been going to school with all these kids all these years in the same school. She wanted to graduate with the rest of her gang. She decided that she wasn't going to cut anymore. First week in October, she decided she'd go cut school. She had arranged with Wes Shermantine to go swimming or somewhere with him. Early that morning, about 7 o'clock before I took him to school, she got a phone call. And Marnie answered the phone. Hello? Marnie was freshman. She just got into high school. She answered the phone. She told Chevy that it was her. She talked a few minutes and got off the phone. Marnie came down with an earache or sore throat or something. I forget just which it is now. But she said that she didn't feel good and that she was going to stay home from school. So I, I said, okay. I took Chevy to school. Dropped her off about 7.20 at Franklin High. She leaned over, gave me a kiss, said she loved me, and said bye. Got out of the car. I 
stepped on the gas just a little bit to nudge the car forward like I was going to hit her. And she jumped out and ha, 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 and pointed to me and went on into the school building. It turns out that she went around to all of her friends and asked if they wanted to go swimming. And for whatever reason, they had a test to do or they had to study or whatever. Nobody agreed to go. She left school about 7.30. That was the time that she had arranged to meet up with my Sherman time. Nobody knew exactly what she was going to do or what except her to go swimming. She told her friends that if she didn't get back by noon to let her dad know, she was supposed to meet her boyfriend, Donnie, at school at noon lunch. The thing was, as Joanne Hobson went missing a month before, Chevy and Joanne were friends. And my thinking why she went with him was to find out if he knew anything about Joanne. Apparently, they headed up the hill to Calaveras. And on the way up, a friend of hers, Tracy, that lived on the next street, they were good friends. She had a baby with her boyfriend up in San Andreas or somewhere up there. And she spent the weekend up there with him. She was pregnant. On their route to home, she was going to go to school. She was part-time. Wes had a Ford pickup. It was customized. It was one of those small ones. Had big tires on it. Bubble windows. and It was a girl catcher. And along with the stereo, his pickup was one of a kind. Tracy and her boyfriend were driving back down the hill to Stockton, and they could have sworn that they saw Wes's pickup drive up the hill, and somebody ducked down, and it looked like they had blonde hair, which Chevy had. That wasn't told till later, but that's what we learned. I went to work at 10.30. I worked in a convalescent. I was a cook. Personal phone call coming through into the kitchen, and my boss told everybody that no more personal calls. The girls were supposed to call at 2 o'clock when they got home from school after taking the bus home. I looked at the clock, and I watched it, and I watched it. Okay, 2 o'clock. I called home and told Marnie that she wasn't supposed to call because we couldn't get any calls in. So I figured, okay, 2 o'clock, they're both home, they're safe and sound. I didn't bother to call or anything, but I just figured they would, Chevy was home. I continued to work and such, and about 5 o'clock, we were about ready to serve dinner. And I got a call. It was my husband, and he said, something's wrong, Chevy's not here. Nobody knows where she's at. I flipped I told everybody that I had to go, that Chevy was missing, and I jammed home. Got home and asked what was going on, and they told me what they knew and such, and Marnie didn't say anything. Shana B worked in a little pizza place not too far from the house, so I went over and asked her if she knew anything, and she said she didn't. Wes's name came up. Marnie said that it was Wes on the phone. 
So I asked Shada, and she said, you know, Wes Sherbentine has anything to do with it. It's not good. Her boyfriend at the time were acquaintances. They were in the same class together at school, and he knew Wes as somebody who wasn't an okay guy. I went home. I called all the Shermanites in the book. Nobody knew of Sha- uh, of Wes. They just never heard of me, even though Shermanites is an odd name. But anyway, I said, if you hear or see of him uh, or know of him, would you have him call? Chevy did not come home on the night of the 16th of October, 1985. And so her parents decided the next morning that they needed to call the police and report her missing. As with Joanne, the police said that she was probably just a runaway and they wouldn't be able to do anything for 30 days. This is Paula talking about that day, what happened next, and the visitors they had prior to making that call to the police. The next morning, Wes and his buddy Popeye. Popeye was a mutual friend. He was the one that introduced Chevy to Wes. He and Popeye come over in the morning. It's still warm in the first part of October. It was 75 degrees or something like that. Wes came up to the house and said, you wanted to talk to me? And we said, yeah. I said, what the hell did you do with my daughter? Oh, I don't know anything about it. He had a white t-shirt on, a short sleeve t-shirt, and Chevy had extra long, thick nails. And if she needed to use them, she would have. Her dad taught her to defend herself. Okay, there, I had him take off his shirt, and there wasn't a, a scratch mark on him. So there wasn't much proof that he had done anything. He said Chevy was his friend, and he wouldn't do her any harm. Well, that didn't help. After that, we called the police and said that she was missing. They weren't going to do anything for 30 days. That bugged the hell out of us. There was a guy that came out, juvenile authority type guy, and he didn't seem the least bit worried, impressed, nothing. Oh, she just ran. She might have cut school, but she never ran away. We went out looking every chance we got on the road, at the mall, wherever, and we couldn't find anything. We did meet up with one girl that looked an awful lot like her. We had a license plate number. In December, Dave Kniff took over, and he was a real great, caring guy. He had a daughter that was 16, and he could relate. And so he was doing everything possible. I gave him the license plate number, and he checked it out. A girl answered the door. She had long blonde hair, and he thought, wow, she looks an awful lot like her. It turns out... My niece, Patty, had a girlfriend, Sharon. It was her daughter that we saw. But everywhere that we went, anytime we saw a girl, we would tell Steve where and what and when and such, and he'd check everything out. If he got any notices, he would let us know. West had a hunting cabin up in San Andreas, Steve Kadif went up to the cabin 
and check things out. And when he went in, this is two months after Chevy disappeared. He goes in and, and checks things out and he sees blood spots everywhere. He sees long blonde hair. He takes all this evidence and I asked him what he found, but he said they found some evidence, but he didn't tell me, but he told my husband it doesn't look good. He continued on with investigating. We went everywhere, looked everywhere. Marnie decided that she would go out and check and see if she could find her. So she ended up cutting school, basically just gave up with school. And if my sister ran away, I want to know why. Why didn't she take me? And so she went out on the streets looking for her. Marnie kept looking and looking, and she never did find her. Chevy was never seen again. Her remains were found in a shallow grave 27 years later. We will be hearing from Paula again in a later episode. There is a large gap between Chevy going missing and the Speed Freak Killer's next known victim in the fall of 1998. So what were they doing during this time? It's very unlikely that they went from such a condensed crime spate to nothing at all for 14 years. There are many suspected victims over this time. Lots of people went missing, such as Philip Martin, Gail Marks and Dina McCann. We will be looking at some of these cases as the season goes on and trying to get information to help these families find out what happened to their loved ones. What we do know is that there were victims of rape and abduction that did not disappear and were not murdered. The information we have from these victims comes from police statements that have been provided to us. These statements were taken around the time of Shermantine and Herzog's arrests. If any of those involved would like to come forward and speak to us, we would love to hear from you. Please note that some of these statements contain descriptions of a graphic sexual nature and may not be suitable for all listeners. Sherman Tyne's own sister, Dolly, came forward as a witness and said that when she was younger, her Zarg had come over to their house and raped her. She also said that a friend of hers from school, Natalie Witt, was a victim of Herzog. Natalie knew both Sherman Tyne and Herzog. In fact, Herzog was her first boyfriend when she was in sixth grade and he was in seventh grade. She said that Sherman Tyne was Herzog's best friend. She described Herzog as being a bit wimpy, but said that he was afraid of Sherman Tyne and did everything he was told to. Natalie gave an example of Sherman Tyne once punching her in the nose while Herzog just stood there and did nothing to help her. At the time, Herzog was supposed to be her boyfriend, yet he just stood and watched without stepping in. Natalie said that when she was in seventh grade, she was walking past Herzog's house one evening when Shermantine and Herzog called her over to them. They were by a propane tank on the Herzog property. She was laying on the ground with Herzog on top of her, trying to have sex. She recalls Shermantine egging him on, telling her, you want it. She kept telling Herzog no, 
and he finally stopped. The next day at school, Shermantine made a comment to her about her walking funny and asked her if she'd had sex with Herzog the night before. Natalie said she never spoke to them again after this. It should be noted that while many people describe Herzog as quiet and a bit wimpy in his earlier years, this was definitely not true as they got older. In fact, many later reports, Herzog is deemed to be the more violent and headstrong of the pair. In August of 1993, Anita Shaw started dating Shermantine. However, around two months into their relationship, she found out that he was married to Sherry and ended it with him. Anita said Shermantine used to take her down a dirt road, which led off of Mountain Ranch Road and went up behind the Calaveras County Sheriff's Office. She said Shermantine would drive to the end of the road and then continue driving through the woods approximately one more mile where he would park. He told her this was a special place for him and he would often come to this place to think. Anita said that one day Shermantine told her he no longer wanted to go to this location and he was acting very strangely. She asked him why, but he would not tell her. Anita said that Shermantine used to associate with Mark Hicks. She said that on one occasion, she was in a bar in San Andreas when Shermantine and Hicks showed up. They appeared to be upset about something and told her to leave and go see a friend as they didn't want her around. Anita said that before she left, she noticed that Hicks had blood on his shoes. And when she returned to the bar a few hours later, she was told that someone had seen that both Sherman Tiny and Hicks had blood on their shoes and on their clothing. In February of 1994, Anita said that Sherman Tyne gave her around $100 to go pay his PG&E bill. She did it the day after he asked, but he didn't believe her. At the time, he was using large amounts of crank and was acting in a very strange manner. To try and please him, his wife Sherry drove Anita to the PG&E office to prove it had been paid. However, on returning to the Shermantine house, which was full of family and friends, Shermantine continued to accuse her of stealing his money. He began to hit her in the face, knocking her head and face against the wall. He made her remove all of her clothes in front of everyone to see if she had the money on her. He then threatened to kill her and her family if she reported the incident to police. Shermantine then proceeded to rip out all of the phone cords in the house, locked all of the doors, and held Anita captive for approximately two days. He even called her parents in Alabama and told them to send money to stop him from killing her. Anita finally managed to convince Shermantine to let her go. She was too scared to report the incident to police at the time. In 1994, just under a year after Anita was assaulted, Fazia Mohammed was attacked by Shermantine. She reported that Shermantine had used his truck to bump the rear of her car and then waved her to pull over. They both got out of their cars and it was then that Shermantine grabbed her from behind around the waist, lifted her off the ground and walked her to his vehicle. The door of his truck was already open and he pushed her head down to get her into it. Fazia lifted her head a couple of times, but he pushed it back down, continuing to touch her hair. He then put a knife to her throat and said, Can you feel that? When she replied yes, he said, 
do as I tell you and I'm not going to hurt you. At one point, she started to struggle and managed to get the passenger door open with her feet. Shermantine began to swerve the vehicle from left to right. her legs were hanging out. She said they were travelling fast, maybe as much as 85 miles per hour. She managed to scratch him a few times on the face, which she was sure would leave marks. Faisy was convinced he was going to rape her, so she said that she thought jumping out of a moving vehicle was her best option. The following year, in around October 1995, Vicky Wendell went to the Shermantine's house to collect some money that they owed her for babysitting. She was around 22 years of age at the time. The Shermantines lived next door to herself and her husband, Jeff, and she would look after their children from time to time. Sherry was not in when she knocked on the door, but Shermantine opened the door and invited her in. They chatted briefly, Vicky expressing an interest in purchasing a car stereo. Shermantine that he said that he had one in the master bedroom and asked Vicky to follow him in there. Once they had entered the bedroom, Shermantine tried to kiss Vicky on the mouth, but she resisted. He then forced her down onto the bed, held her hands down and removed her sweatpants. Shermantine then forcibly had sexual intercourse with her, despite Vicky repeatedly telling him no. She told her husband of the rape a few days later. When he went next door to confront Shermantine, he was punched twice. He called the police and a report was filed. However, no further action was taken as Vicky was told by the deputy it would be pointless to file a complaint due to the passage of time and lack of evidence. There were a number of other victims named in the documents that we have seen. During a summer in the early 1990s, Debbie Brooke was assaulted by two men. She had been out drinking in the Black Bart with a friend, Mark Hicks. She ended up leaving the bar with a couple of men. While she did not know their names, their descriptions fit Shermantine and Herzog. They drove out of Valley Springs and up a long dirt road to a trailer, which had been gutted out and just appeared to have a bedroom in it. The room had an old bed with an old mattress and a headboard that was possibly metal. She said the bed was up off the floor and had no sheets. One of the men had a pistol. When asked if they threatened her with it, she hesitated. Debbie fell asleep and when she woke up, her hands were both tied to the headboard. Her skirt was half on, half off, and her underwear was at her ankles. She recalls that repeatedly throughout the night, the two men inserted the barrel of the pistol into her vagina. In the morning, when it was daylight, the men both came into the room. The tall one was wearing a trench coat, which he opened to reveal the pistol he was wearing. They asked if she remembered anything and she said no. They told her to get up and then drove her home. At the time of Debbie's assault, she was a blackout drinker and says that she does not remember all of the events of that night. Linda McClung was allegedly abducted by two men in 1991 that she believes were Shermantine and Herzog. She lost consciousness at various points of the assault but believes she was raped vaginally and anally as well as being forced to give oral sex based on the physical condition she found herself in afterwards. Debbie Sanchez also claimed that Shermantine had raped her but did not want to cooperate with the investigation. In the spring of 1994, Angela Constanza was found sobbing by her friends Kelly King and Mark Hicks. She told them that she had gone with Shermantine to Herzog's and they had done a lot of dope. She said on the way back, Shermantine took a different route home and then said that he tried to rape her. In February 1998, 
over 13 years since Chevy. The pair's last known victim went missing. Lisa Pisano contacted the police to report that Shermantine had raped her and held her captive. The police took her statement, and Shermantine was arrested and held in custody. This was not a random attack. Lisa had known Shermantine for 10 years. These are from Lisa's police statement. Shermantine got out of his pickup and opened her driver's side door with his left hand and pulled Lisa out of her car with his right. He then got in her car and said, Get in the car, you. When she refused, he threatened to take her car to a chop shop and take a torch to it, telling her she could call the cops and report it stolen. After driving away and leaving her on the side of the road for about 20 minutes, Shermantine returned in her car, grabbed her, and forced her into the passenger side as she screamed, let go of me, what's going on? After hitting her in the face with the back of his right hand and telling her to sit there and shut up, he drove her five to six miles up the road to the end of a maintenance road. Here he parked and told her, I'm going to teach you a lesson. Shermantine then pulled a knife from his left coat pocket, flipped it open, and said, Take your pants off, bitch. While he held the knife to her throat and held her back up against the seat, Lisa was screaming, kicking, elbowing, and scratching at Shermantine, but he was too strong for her. He pulled her pants down to her ankles, the knife still at her throat. He then grabbed her hair and forced her to orally copulate him, causing her to gag. He then pulled her legs over to the driver's side, forced them apart, climbed on top of her, and raped her, both vaginally and anally. After ejaculating inside her, he pushed her away and put the knife back in his coat pocket. Shermantine then walked around to the passenger side of the car and pulled her out, pushing her to the ground. As he pushed her head to the ground, she cried as Shermantine said, I want you to hear the heartbeat of the family I killed and buried here. After he let her back in the car, he drove to a house where he said he had to speak to some people about a mail run. After he left her in the car, he said, They have guns watching you. He took the keys and was gone for about 10 minutes. He then drove her back to his truck and let her go, saying he would kill her if she told the police, and, you are damn lucky I'm teaching you a lesson, and not someone else. Sherman Tyne stood trial for the rape of Lisa, later in 1998, in Calaveras County, but he was acquitted. Lisa said that the jury did not convict him because his attorney had attacked her character, and crucial evidence was lost by investigating officers. While Sherman Tyne was in jail, Awaiting trial for the attack on Lisa, he started to correspond with Leanne Daniels. Leanne was also incarcerated at the time due to charges stemming from her alcohol dependency. They originally started talking through the fence at the jail, but then began to write to one another. When he was let out, he found out where she was staying and picked her and her daughter up and drove them to his parents' place in San Andreas. She met Sherman Tyne's parents 
and children, and they all went swimming in the parents' pool. When she went into the house to change, he followed her, grabbed her hair, and made her give him oral sex, while saying, I've been waiting for this for a really long time. He then started to undress her, saying, It better be as good as I dreamed of, while he forced her to have intercourse. She kept telling him she didn't want to, but he carried on and was very rough. A few days later, he showed up and took her to the Stevens Motel, telling her they were going to spend the night there. Leanne said Shermantine seemed familiar to the hotel manager. When they got to the room, she started drinking. Shermantine took the bottle away and told her to get undressed. She told him she didn't want to have sex and began to struggle. He was forceful and held her down while he began to penetrate her anally. She was crying, but he wouldn't stop. Another few days had passed. Shermantine took Leanne to a party in the Stockton area. He told her that these friends ran a chop shop, and she saw lots of drugs there. It was while at a party that he forced her to get a tattoo of his name on her breast so that everyone would know she belonged to him. Following this, he took her to her in-law's house, where he again forced her to perform oral sex while he held her head by her hair. She never saw Sherman Tyne again after this. She described him as violent, with an explosive temper, and recalled that when they were in jail, he had beaten someone with a phone. Leanne never reported the rapes of Shermantine. He told her he could make her disappear. She did say that he told her of an incident where he duct-taped a girl from the Black Bart bar, and he and a buddy raped her and put her in the back of a truck. He told her that Kringster girls can do anything and bragged to her about manufacturing and cooking crank himself. Cindy van der Heiden went missing just months after Shermantine's acquittal for the rape of Lisa Passano and the rape of Leanne Daniels. Lisa was quoted by recordnet.com as saying, If they just would have listened to me and believed me, Cindy van der Heiden would still be alive. Join us for our next episode when we will talk about Cindy and speak to members of her family. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.